News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC on Thursday afternoon. I'm Harry Siegel here in Brooklyn on Zoom with Christina Greer, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. Zoom, Zoom. And in a minute, we're going to be uh, talking with George Joseph, uh, an investigative reporter with WNYC's new Race and Justice Unit, about his extensive reporting this year on the uh, Mount Vernon police, which uh, is quite a mess. Harry, I I believe when you say Mount Vernon, I believe it's money-earning Mount Vernon every time you say it, just as a a side note. Well... (laughs) While while we're doing side notes, uh, I will note that there is a Peaceful Journey statue uh, that I believe got approved last month of Heavy D that is going to be uh, in Mount Vernon shortly by by an artist up there commemorating uh, one of the icons from Mount Vernon along with uh, Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. Well, you know, uh, we didn't get into this with George Joseph, but... Mount Vernon, you know, even though it's only 16 miles away from the city, I mean, they have quite a quite a lineup when it comes to celebrities. Denzel Washington, DMX, um, E.B. White, <laughs> you know, Heavy D, as you said. Uh, there, there are quite a few famous people who came out of Mount Vernon. Indeed, and uh, it, it's its own its own little world, just uh, just north of the Bronx. We also have this week uh, Maya Wiley, FAQ guest, is officially in the mayor's race and uh, presenting herself despite her work for the de Blasio administration as the uh, sort of fresh outsider in the field. Uh, Chrissy, what did you think of the announcement and the state of things? We're we're nine months out from the primary. That's almost surely going to decide the next mayor. Well, you know, I think it's the season is upon us. I, I do feel for all of the candidates, quite honestly, because so many people are, are just on pins and needles about November 3rd and will probably not be fully focused until January 20th after the inauguration. And so we're kind of looking at a a real mayoral season starting, let's just say, February 1st. But instead of having the primary in September, like we did in 2013 when we had such an open and crowded race, the candidates don't have all summer to make their case. They just have until mid-June. So I sort of see it as a February 1st to to mid-June election cycle where they're going to have to use time and resources and money to try and and articulate their vision of New York to many New Yorkers. And we don't know where we'll be with the coronavirus. So campaigning will be a little difficult, possibly. Uh, We'll still be in some winter months at the beginning of the campaign season. Uh, and there's there'll be some sort of kind of election fatigue, I think. Uh, we're still dealing with coronavirus. Uh, I don't know what people's money will be, you know, honestly, donating to these campaigns. So there seem to be quite a few challenges uh, with the shortened election cycle. And obviously, as we always mention, ranked choice voting throws in the wild card. I watched Maya Wiley's campaign video, and what struck me was, you know, she sort of addressed the question head on. You know, she's not a traditional candidate not just in physical appearance, but in skill set, uh, did, I think, sort of give a little jab to the Scots and Eric's of the world where it's saying, you know, we sort of seen what happens with kind of career politicians. Maybe uh, if we want a different path, maybe we should think holistically about a different path. I thought the background setting was an interesting choice. It felt very suburban to me, not urban. It felt very sort of like beautiful Long Island and not necessarily kind of gritty New York. And maybe that's the vision that she knows so many New Yorkers want uh, because of the fear-mongering that's been going on about the violence and the chaos in the city. So it'll be fascinating to see, largely because we saw how the summer helped de Blasio so much in 2013, how the issue of stop and frisk became such an issue for so many Black New Yorkers especially, but it was really in the forefront um, during the summer months. And so... I don't know what this truncated electoral season will really do for for a lot of the candidates, especially uh, the non-traditional candidates who are trying to introduce themselves to New Yorkers in a new way. I think Maya has, you know, obviously 
a leg up. She's been on MSNBC. She's been on WNYC. A lot of folks know her, but a lot do not, you know, sort of people who aren't uh, MSNBC and WNYC crowd. So we'll see how she does with, with new groups of people. And I think rightly so, she and Eric Adams and Scott Stringer and whomever else decides to, to really jump in whole hog will get hard questions about not just policing, but social justice and the economy. And, you know, we know in a few weeks we're going to have Esther Fuchs on the show to talk about mayors and money and someone who fundamentally understands the relationship between Albany and New York City and the federal government and working with the city council. I think all of them should get those hard questions. Um, So I'm really curious and interested to hear how they want to approach the new vision uh, as they seek to become the 110th mayor of New York City. So I think looming behind all that is what happens with Washington and what happens with Albany and money. Uh, Cuomo has often played a, a dominant role with this mayor. And I think he very much expects to play a much more dominant role with the next mayor, given what dire fiscal straits the city is likely to be in Mm -hmm. and the help it's likely to need. So I'm hoping that some of the candidates are going to be able to address that in the city's condition more generally in a serious way. And my concern is we're going to have something of of a truncated personality contest race while these much bigger issues are on the table. Uh, speaking of the, the, those issues, we've had this backdrop for the last two days of, uh, of chaotic black block demonstrations in our anarchist jurisdiction. And I'm referring here, of course, to the Satmar Jews of Borough Park, who have been uh, out in the streets where the NYPD has said, can you, can you please stop dancing in the streets? And they have not. Um, assaulted a uh, journalist who's also an Orthodox Jew, Jacob Kornblatt, who is there to document some of this. Um, assaulted one other participant who was there who, who ended up uh, hospitalized. And uh, so far, as we're talking, there have been no arrests and this sense that, that something has, has gone severely out of whack. Andrew Cuomo just had a presser that ended minutes ago as we're recording this on Thursday, where he said, pointing pretty directly at de Blasio without naming him, the issue is you have to enforce the law. And because you didn't enforce the law, and that seemed easier at the time, uh, we're, we're now having this problem where doing so seem, seems hypocritical or like some sort of brand new imposition. And of course, all this is happening because the virus is spread and is spread within uh large clusters of the uh, ultra-Orthodox community in the uh, city and the greater metro area. The result being that, that de Blasio, for instance, has long had this hands-off arrangement where, where he provides resources, he's received votes going back to when he was a council member uh, from the community, which is just deeply skeptical of secular authority generally, and then has sort of left it to govern itself. So this came up with measles a couple of years ago. And it's come up in a big way now where, where plainly you can't just uh, allow for, for, for spread in a uh, largely uh, Trumpist-oriented group that's very skeptical of mass, where some people think there, there's herd immunity going on. But having not enforced anything up until now, it's proving very difficult to enforce. And after months and months, as we've talked about, of de Blasio ineptly and the NYPD sort of, sort of ineptly trying to handle protests and public health concerns and uh, applying either either no public pressure at all or, or vastly disproportionate public pressure. And we seem to be stuck again. Uh, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for the, uh, for, for the way out of this. And I am stunned that when you had an assault on, on Cornblood that was caught on camera, that a day later, nobody has been arrested or charged. Yeah, the lack of arrests obviously piqued my attention. Um, but I think, you know, I just feel like the mayor's so over this job. It just, it it seems like he, he and the governor, and I said this last night when I was talking to Harrison and Bobby Cusa on New York One, 
And a comedian on Twitter wrote this, and I fundamentally agree. He said, de Blasio just needs to drive up to Albany and, like, square up with Cuomo. Like, just, like, get out the car, like, dude, what's up? And, like, roll up on him. Because the thing is, the two of them refuse to communicate and work together to solve not just issues pertaining to the coronavirus, explicitly pertaining to the coronavirus, but issues such as this one, where it actually, it does affect communities. And like, uh, it is a life or death situation. We're going to get to Jacob in a second and his own personal safety, and we cannot have journalists being attacked in the streets. But I, I can't help but think, Harry, if de Blasio and Cuomo, both Democrats, by the way, had some sort of working relationship, they could have figured out, we know the high holidays are coming up. We know that Sukkot is, is, as it's been explained to me, one of the celebratory holidays. Kids are out of school, you know, like families do things together. Sorry about this, um, these uh, ambulances in the background. But, you know, we knew this holiday was coming up. We know what has happened in the past, you know, as far as families getting together and, and enjoying the city, not just during the daytime hours, but in the evening. Like, this goes the high back holidays to school are, planning. Yeah. So in, in a uh, big way, listen, that, yeah. don't get me started. Like, and I don't even have kids in the in the New York City public school system. I'm just so angry on behalf of all of my friends who have to spend hours upon a day trying to figure out how they're going to be a professional and also the world. They tell me the world's worst teacher. You know, the good thing is, you know, most of my friends are quite smart, so their kids aren't going to fall too far. But like. You know, it's just another day and feeling like you're a failed parent and nobody wants to feel that way. I mean, that's ridiculous. So I I think the big picture for me is that this situation that we're experiencing where so many people are going to be exposed potentially uh, to coronavirus and we're going to see outbreaks in a closed community that will obviously spread out to other communities as well and then put New York City in, in a really dangerous position. I just wish that the mayor and the governor would work together because this is one of the most, I would say, abusive and destructive and embarrassing relationships that we've witnessed in like modern political history from two people of the same party. And and as as I said before, now it's not just, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, this backbiting, they need to get over it. You know, come on guys, like stop with the machismo nonsense. But as as I said, it was like, people are going to start losing lives because of their incompetence and their egos. And now we're seeing I think the public have. health effects. Yeah. I, th- I think they have. I think the shutdown was delayed because Cuomo didn't want it to be de Blasio's shutdown. And I, I think that set of dynamics has, has continued since. It's really out of hand. You hit and that microphone, Harry. Hit it. Go ahead. Bam. <laughs> bam. So – we lost uh, earlier today uh, Jim Dwyer, who was a, a colleague in New York journalism, had been at the Daily News long before I was there, then at Newsday, and then at the New York Times, who Tom Robbins, another terrific journalist, said, uh, few love New York City more, served her better than Jim Dwyer, a reporter, citizen extraordinaire. We've been blessed to have him among us, and we're bereft to be without him. And... Uh, Jim was a transit reporter, um, then a columnist, and somebody who wrote beautifully and knowingly about New York, along with really deep and incredible reportage, someone whose work I studied. I, I, I don't have uh, much to add to, to some of the, the really lovely tributes that, that have come in. Andrew Cuomo actually spent a fair amount of his presser today reflecting on Jim and that generation of journalists uh, who he grew up with. But I, I just wanted to not let the uh, show pass without without noting what a loss this really is for uh, for New York City. I'm really sorry, Harry. In the sense, yeah, you know, I did not know, I did not know Jim at all. But I do feel like hanging out with you these past few years has really shown a light on just how much of a fraternity and sorority journalists are like you all are, you know, I don't, I'm an academic. I don't know you all and like the inner workings, but there is, there's a commonality of you all as I've gotten to know quite a few over the, over the years in the city, you know, like the room nine folks and the people who do print journalism and on air journalism. 
Um, and you all seem to be, uh, whether or not you're best friends or not, there's like a, there's like a level of respect that is like, cause you're part of a club that not everyone's in. And what I really, I was telling someone about you, I was talking about you this weekend to someone, um, who is a journalist who's a little bit older than us. And I was saying what I really admire about you is that you seem to be a bridge to me between like the old school newsman and like the younger kind of digital faster folks who still need kind of that like old school ethos because so many young journalists are never going to meet, you know, the Wayne Barrett's of the world or the Dwyer's of the world. And so it's a real loss for them. So it's like the leg, their legacies have to be continued through kind of like this bridge generation, which I see you as like one of the key elements of. I just, I, there, there's Michael Daly as well, who we've had on the pod and I've had the pleasure of working with. There, there's a bunch of the, these older people, largely, but not entirely guys because of the, the nature of the industry at that point, who I, I think just uh, were in some things and, and we're in a position with the resources to do a sort of a reporting that we have less and less of now that, that was richer and more substantial and, and really intimately involved in the city with deep knowledge of, of its institutions, but also its people. And, and I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, learn and absorb what I can from them. Um, with that, I think we should bring on a terrific younger reporter, uh, George Joseph, who is the investigative reporter with WNYC's Race and Justice Unit. George has been on once before. His reporting on Mount Vernon has been incredible. His reporting actually on what's been happening with justice reform in New York City has also been terrific. And we wanted to uh, catch up with him and hear more about, uh, about what's been happening. So let's jump right in. I remember him whispering in my ear and telling me, clearly, this is the first time I said this publicly, because I don't care anymore. He, when he came over to me, and I, I'm, I'm clearly, I, I was on the edge of my bed, and I stood up and he said to me, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure this person get off the street, and we're going to catch them. But if you want to do something, I'm okay with that too. The mayor in my ear. It's Wednesday afternoon. We're here with George Joseph, an investigative reporter with WNYC's new Race and Justice Unit, who's been reporting for months now on Mount Vernon, a relatively small majority-minority city just north of the Bronx, where a whistleblowing cop has recorded conversations with other officers where they talked about framing and assaulting innocent residents, working with favorite drug dealers, all while uh, supervisors look the other way. One result of this corruption has been a culture of gun carrying. George Joseph, thank you so much for joining us at FAQ NYC. Can you tell us a little more about what led you to start investigating money-earning Mount Vernon, as (laughs) we like to call it? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Um, so it, it was really a moment of serendipity. I was covering a hearing on 50A, the law that was recently repealed about secrecy around police records in New York. And while I was there covering this rally, an attorney who happened to be running for Queens DA at the time, Joseph Murray, just happened to be there doing his own thing. We ran into each other. I had already talked to him before for a, a previous story. And so we were just, you know, catching up and he was like, oh yeah, I have these crazy recordings in Mount Vernon. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that would be cool for radio, recordings, radio, that that works well. And so he, he sort of had a story for me about his client who was an active officer in Mount Vernon talking about being retaliated against, talking about being called a rat by his supervisors at roll call. And... What really struck me about that was that this officer, Mershia Bavel, who's a black officer, loves the city of Mount Vernon, has been on the force for years, had already filed a public lawsuit three years earlier or four years earlier 
alleging rampant corruption within his department, naming some of his fellow officers for allegedly stealing from residents, for allegedly beating up residents, for being straight up racist. And he stayed on the force. All those officers stayed on the force. Basically, nothing happened. Um, nothing changed. And he was still out there. And this story had gotten very little attention. The city had gotten very little attention, especially its department, its police department. So I thought there must be something really going on here. I didn't quite know what this whistleblower had, but I, I, I knew I needed to be digging into this community. And as you started digging in, you can hear much more in, in a whole series of pieces at WNYC, but you just want to give our listeners sort of a quick overview of uh, what you found and reported. So, you know, we did this first story about allegations by the whistleblower that he had been retaliated against. And in a lawsuit he had previously filed, he had already accused some of his fellow officers in the then narcotics unit of stealing from residents, assaulting residents in custody and using the N-word racial epithets against residents. And I didn't really know what exactly more to do, but I started looking at lawsuits, digging around, seeing what else had been accused against these narcotics officers. And through that process, I was able to get a hold of some confidential internal affairs records from the Mount Vernon Police Department, looking at civilian complaints against some of these officers that the whistleblower had accused um, and what happened with them. And what we found was a pattern of civilians over the years complaining about similar things, being stolen from, being assaulted, being harassed on the street, being strip searched, being humiliated in these very sort of invasive searches. And over and over again, the officer's direct supervisors were investigating the allegations themselves, waving them off and nothing happening. So that was sort of our first big story, looking at one detective in particular Detective Camilo Antonini, who has quite a reputation in the city of Mount Vernon. And from there, we kept reporting. And I think that our dedication to a place that doesn't usually get much media attention earned us respect from people in the street and also the whistleblower. So eventually he turned over, you know, this amazing trove of hours and hours of recordings that he had made of his colleagues speaking on the phone, describing and referring to numerous detailed specific incidents of police corruption and abuse that they had allegedly witnessed. I did a search warrant in this dude's house. We hit the door. This guy goes in, gets the first door. It breaks the glass. We hit the second door. This guy runs to the toilet, uh, flushes all the heroin down the toilet, right? So we come up with nothing. But I got him on a sale anyway. He said that wasn't enough for one of the officers on scene, Detective Camilo Antonini who they call Nini. This guy, this guy the 70-year-old white dude, may I add you, Nini is smacking the living out of this dude in front of Fagan. I'm talking about, like, not a little smack. I'm talking about cocking back and smacking this dude so hard that he's losing his breath and can't breathe. After five brutal minutes, he says, their supervisor, Sergeant Sean Fagan, stepped in. Fagan was like, yo, Nini, just give, give him his inhaler. Give him, give him his inhaler. He's about to die. And I'm just standing there, like, I'm like, yo. I'm like, what's this guy doing? I mean, who cares? He flushed it. Like, people come out empty all the time on search warrants. In cuffs, dude. I'm talking about an old, feeble man. Like, old. Like, 70 years old. Like, not even, like, exaggerating. Audio courtesy of WNYC. You know, there was a lot going on in the background because the whistleblower was still at this point trying to work with the district attorney's office, trying to get change sort of to happen from within in Westchester County and Mount Vernon, and nothing seemed to be going forward. So eventually, when he reached a breaking point, he told us, OK, fine, you can go into the stuff, you can publish it, you know, you can report on it. And so from there, I just started running for months with this material. Um, our first story came out in June, examining specific claims of civilians who had allegedly been framed by narcotics officers. I said I saw them tell the county UC to identify the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Um, illegally enter people's homes and threaten them, plant drugs on people. Illegal crack pipes and drugs are always on the person. They call it the rainy day fund. Search warrants done with little to no evidence. Everything was fabricated. Our second story examined claims of narcotics officers working with favored drug dealers, allowing them to control territory and sell with impunity in exchange for help with um, 
racking up low-level arrests of drug users. Officer John Campo and a colleague had just arrested a man for a quality-of-life violation when the suspect made a strange request. The dude looked at me, he's Campo. I got 40 rocks in my pocket. Take it out of my pocket and stash it somewhere. The man was asking police to safeguard his crack cocaine. Campo said he then asked a detective for guidance. Oh, father, what do you want me to do? You know, I'm not a snitch. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right. So I said, go take it out of his pocket and hide it. Mm-hmm. So I took the 40 rocks to crack out of his pocket and put it in my sneaker. Campo says police took the suspect to the station, and he walked out with a desk appearance ticket and his stash. Brought them in, gave them the AT, got him out of there, you know what I'm saying? Gave him the 40 crack rocks back. And those two stories sort of became the... It was big news in Westchester County and became the pivotal issue in the Westchester County DA's primary race at the time because the incumbent DA was being challenged by Mimi Roca, a former federal prosecutor, who, upon hearing the tapes, attacked the incumbent, arguing that he shouldn't have continued to prosecute residents based on these officers' word without telling them about these sort of dramatic allegations and sending them upstate while leaving them in the dark about these allegations, which she alleged he failed to properly investigate. So let's put a pin there for just one second, because there's been all this parallel stuff happening in New York with DAs keeping secretly and now finally releasing their own lists of officers they know not to trust. Yeah, I mean, that's I want to back up just a little bit for our listeners, because looking at the demographics of Mount Vernon, Right. I think a lot of people have heard of Mount Vernon largely from hip hop songs. And like, you know, there's certain famous black Americans who are from Mount Vernon. This is a place that's only 16 miles away from the city. Its population is roughly like 67,000 people. It's 67 percent, 65 percent black, but like 19 percent white. Can you tell us a little bit more about the demographics of the police force and also the leadership to kind of paint? a more nuanced, racialized picture of who some of these actors are in, in, in Mount Vernon? So um, that's a great question. A lot of the actors who have been accused over and over again of misconduct in, a, in this sort of narcotics unit that we've been investigating are white or white passing Dominican or just white ethnic uh, kind of officers in you know Mount Vernon, which is a majority black city, as you mentioned. And the force is... I wouldn't say it's overwhelmingly white, but it's definitely uh, not in proportion exactly to the population. And a lot of residents, you know, as you hear across the country, complain that officers often aren't living in the places that they're Mm -hmm. patrolling or enforcing the law, which can potentially lead to a situation where they view what they do as their work and they can sort of be brutal and put aside what they're doing nine to five from what they're going home to in the fancier parts of Westchester County. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's important to know the context is Westchester County, which people often think of, you know, in some ways rightfully as a wealthy white County, but there are these pockets like Yonkers and Mount Vernon with significant black and Latino populations and poor populations in part that don't get the same attention, don't have anywhere near the same accountability resources or oversight mechanisms that, you know, even residents just south of them in the Bronx may have with the numerous public defender services, CCRB services, Mullen Commission regulatory apparatuses. There's so many different groups and media organizations that are interested in what the NYP are doing. And basically the same type of people, demographically speaking, income-wise, racial-wise, live just north of them, just north of the county line and are getting a completely different world of policing and oversight. Um, and so I, that, that was very interesting to me as a New York City reporter to see how dysfunctional and different policing and city governance is <laughs> uh, just north of the city. And that's saying a lot, given what we know about the de Blasio and Cuomo administrations. <laughs> Listen, don't get us started. <laughs> Harry, we'll go, on, we'll go on a total tangent. Um, so, George, you mentioned an officer who was sort of known as, you know, that phrase of like, oh, he's a bad apple. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about him and and what made him 
sort of this standout officer is, you know, everyone knows, and this is pretty common across the country, certain officers, everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows what he does. Um, what are some of the things that he was known for in Mount Vernon uh, that made him have this reputation? And I should say is known for because he's still on the force following mm. our series. He's been put on desk duty, but he is still on the force collecting a check. And some residents are very upset about that. But to answer your question, he is known a lot for brutality allegations. Um, a lot of residents allege that he breaks into apartments and search warrants and is really rough and aggressive from the get go. He's this big, muscly guy. Multiple residents have accused him of very invasive strip searches, claiming that he or partners working with him sort of strip off people's underwear and, and search their anuses for drugs in ways that certainly would, if true, violate department policy and potentially the law, depending on the circumstances of the case. Um, some of those allegations have included very graphic details about anal penetration with the fingers in search for drugs. This is like very humiliating stuff for residents. So they stripped us in the bathroom one by one. And those that refused to get stripped, they were forcefully stripped. But that itself is a violation of departmental policy. They stripped us in the bathroom, right? You're supposed to take them to the station. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the report. That was my, that's my, one of my main uh, arguments in my complaint. Right. And then when I didn't uh, concede to the strip search, the two officers came in and they stripped me. There's also just more general claims of uh, punches of people, mm. assaults of people, in some cases assaults of people who are already in police custody, who are in handcuffs or who are in the department. And what's interesting about our reporting is that these aren't just allegations that are coming from residents. These are allegations that are coming from officers who served with him in the narcotics unit for years or for, you know, a long period of time or for several months that were recorded secretly by this whistleblower and captured on tape. So these types of allegations have been going back for years, but this officer who's now a detective He's been very productive at the same time. He has over 500 arrests in his career, which is quite a lot in Mount Vernon in about a 12-year time period, roughly speaking. Some feel within the department that he's been, quote-unquote, protected because of his productivity. Mm -hmm. And are they going to review any of those cases? Because the productivity that has led to his promotion could have been achieved in ways that are possibly illegal and should not count. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point, especially in part because a lot of the allegations from his fellow officers include things like falsifying search warrants, falsifying paperwork, lying in order to do the things that lead to arrests, or, or just straight up framing people, planting drugs, telling undercovers to identify the wrong people in drug buys, you know, potentially uh, arresting innocent people. There was one case of a man we found who says that he was in the South. Uh, I, I believe it was North Carolina. Uh, this was back in our first story in June about the tapes. At the time that he was accused of uh, making a drug sale in Mount Vernon. And he actually had Instagram photos and evidence of sort of where he was that day and a very clear story. And I didn't even think that. These people was concocting this story up here in New York that I committed this crime because I'm down here. The prosecutor's office kept dragging the case out, out and out and out. He refused to take a plea. Finally, they sort of just dropped it without fully explaining what was going on. They never told him about the tapes throughout this time. If you have this proof and you have an undercover that can put me in this place, why you dismiss my case? Even though he spent some time in jail during that period, he didn't go upstate. He still says that, you know, his family came to distrust him. He lost some of the jobs, some of the progress he had shown in life. And so there are real stakes to this, even for people who don't go to of prison. Course. Of course. How do you undo the harm of having been prosecuted, detained, lost your job, you know, lost time with your family? Where does that get calculated into this assessment when we say we'll deal with it all in a year and a half? It, it misses the human element in ways that are fundamentally unjust. But to answer your question, um, following our reporting, <laughs> the Westchester County District Attorney's Office claims that they're investigating 
these allegations, which would presumably include a case review. The Mount Vernon Police Department also is claiming to be doing something similar, although we really don't know what the status or what's really going on in those probes. Oh, and I should note that the new Westchester County District Attorney has promised to investigate and definitely review those kind of cases. Before before Broca comes in, have there been any real oversight? You were talking about all these layers in New York or power structures that were really trying to hold the department accountable, particularly after this suit was first filed. Was there anyone in the existing power structure who was raising hell about this? Certainly not. Certainly not. In fact, Mount Vernon for, for I think, probably years at this point, the city government has claimed they're going to create a CCRB, a civilian review board, and everyone's passing the buck about why it hasn't yet been created. Oh, the mayor hasn't installed it. Oh, the city council or comptroller hasn't authorized funding for it. You can never get a straight answer about why it hasn't happened. But the bottom line is, whoever's fault it is, it hasn't happened. And so there's very little oversight in that regard outside the department. And no, elected officials haven't really stepped up and said, I'm really going to own this. I'm going to make sure that this kind of conduct, if alleged as it has been, doesn't take place. Um, There's been a lot of, we're going to look into this. We're looking at everything. You know, many officers have been accused of many things. We're looking at everything, you know, and it's quite remarkable after all this has come out with a lot of specifics that the narcotics unit that we've been investigating was disbanded and this specific detective who we discussed was put on desk duty. But in other places, I would wager with more effective accountability mechanisms, more more would have happened than has happened thus far. So to connect a couple themes here, one thing that goes through a lot of your reporting, including in New York, is about aggressive policing, particularly sometimes around guns. And then the criminal action sometimes that this allows for from the police who who are expected to go up against bad guys and to push hard. And then the lack of oversight in these smaller departments. I just bumped into an incredible piece of Mount Vernon trivia, a what if could have been, involving Nicholas Tartaglione, who had been a police officer in Westchester County in Briarcliff Manor, which is your classic leafy suburb. He is a huge, huge sort of roided up guy who uh, was sort of pushed out of the uh, department there, ends up retiring on disability. And before something I'll get to in one second, had just applied to become a police officer in Mount Vernon in that classic way where if one department doesn't want you, but they're not willing to straight up fire you, it's very easy to get hired somewhere else. He does not become a police officer in Mount Vernon because there were four bodies found in his home. He uh, had been involved in a uh, drug ring. He seemed to have murdered all the other people who were involved in the drug ring. He then ended up at uh, MCC in Lower Manhattan, where he was fighting very hard about the filthy conditions in the prison there, which seemed to morally offend him, and ended up being roommates with Jeffrey Epstein, and was there when Epstein tried to kill himself the first time. And people said, well, maybe, maybe this was actually Tartaglione, possibly acting on behalf of Hillary Clinton, if you listen to the internet. That is not a serious thing. But uh, I, I'm going to put a picture of, of him up probably when we post this episode. He's a remarkably gigantic, scary-looking guy who, to me, is emblematic of just how much space there is for abuse within these departments and how limited the consequences tend to be. So when he finally gets pushed out of the one department, he sues them. They're, I think they would have been thrilled to have Mount Vernon take him and to just have him off their books. He gets a full disability at like 47, I think. You know, so he's basically set money-wise for life. And in the meantime, he's uh, dealing drugs and murdering people. And there's really no one there watching any of this. And there's not that much press up there to sort of cover these parts or connect those dots like we have in the city. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, which nationally has gotten a lot of attention and headlines to some degree. Um, Baltimore is obviously a much bigger place than Mount Vernon and you know, was in the national spotlight because of the Freddie Gray protests in 2015. But this unit, this narcotics unit, was sort of similar to that sort of controversial task force in Baltimore in that it was a plainclothes unit empowered to go around and do whatever it wanted in the service of going after guns and drugs. But that discretion can be dangerous when it's in the wrong hands 
or when the temptations become too great. Because if you think about it, there's all this money and drugs and fungible stuff floating on the street. And there's a lot of power to be had to be enjoyed by holding that stuff over people, controlling it, setting the rules in the street. This is a lot of the stuff we hear from people who are maybe drug dealers or former drug dealers and interact with these officers, that there's a sort of love of the game and control. But once the blinds lines get so blurred for the police, allegations start to percolate of them robbing dealers they don't like and working with dealers they do like. And that was certainly happening in Baltimore, as a federal prosecution eventually showed, where you had a unit that was being very productive, grabbing guns and making sort of big arrests. That was at the same time with no oversight going around the city, scoping out drug dealers using sort of intelligence from the street and then just straight up robbing them. And this went on for years and years. And some of these officers got promotions before they ended up getting caught by the feds. And if it hadn't been for the feds, who knows if they'd still be operating today. And sort of to bring it to the policy angle, though, part of the issue is that plainclothes units like that in Baltimore, and I, I won't speak to the gun trace task force in particular, but plainclothes units in general have been shown, especially when they're targeting gun crime, to be effective, in, at least in the short term, in decreasing violent crime rates in the areas that they're saturated within. And conversely, in New York, the disbanding of the plainclothes anti-crime unit that was focused on getting guns off the street, many people have argued uh, had something to do with the rise in gun crime, significant, like 100% rise in gun crime this summer. Although, of course, that rise was paralleled in many other cities, which makes it many hard Many other to, factors. Yeah. Right. I, I think it's hard to argue one way or the other right now in New York, although, yes, People definitely argue that. But across the country, you know, it's not like these units aren't just doing any quote unquote good for the communities that benefit from lower violent crime. That is a real benefit to people that have to suffer from the scourge of violent crime in their neighborhoods. And when you sort of are in a political situation where you just need to stop the bleeding somehow, you may turn to ugly solutions mm -hmm. and everyone sort of knows they're ugly in fact, in Baltimore, some police commanders knew that, you know, we're going to get complaints, we're going to get police shootings, but it's worth it. And so I think that's where a place like Mount Vernon, you know, has been for many years. Right now, violent crime has gone down in Mount Vernon, you know, as many cities it has across the country. But, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was it was really bad, just like many cities across the country. And it's not like the allegations that I'm uncovering now are completely new to Mount Vernon. In the early 90s, there was a federal operation that caught several officers for uh, taking money in a sting operation. Um, and those officers' names are still sort of ring out on the streets. And so you have this almost generational cycle of police corruption entangled with the sort of criminal post-industrial underground of the city that has never fully been gutted out. And the reason I say that is because civilians and residents will often say, oh yeah, well, Antonini, but before him, this guy, and before him, right. that guy. And this guy knew my father and fucked him up that way. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. But, you know, it speaks this entrenched kind of endemic culture. Well, I think what you're saying is really important just because this is the story of so many Black residents across the country in tier one, two, and three cities. And so when some people now are saying, you know, defund the police, what they don't understand is that a lot of Black people, especially older Black people, have lived in areas where because they were homeowners or because they had no other options, they've lived through like horrible waves of crime at the hands sometimes of bad police officers, but then other communities have relied on police officers to sort of assist in rampant open-air drug markets. So this ideological diversity that exists within the Black electorate, to me, is fascinating because we know it's like 90% of Black folks are Democrats, but not all progressive, right? That's just a small faction. There are a lot of folks who are more moderate to conservative who want policing, but they want good policing. They don't want no policing. So thinking about those types of residents, 
I was looking at the leadership in Mount Vernon. And so it seems as though, you know, Mount Vernon's got a, a Black mayor and a Black police commissioner. So where do they factor into your story? Because we've talked about the DA and the police officers, but where's the leadership uh, to help mitigate some of these issues? Well, yeah, that's a great, great context you bring up. And it's certainly relevant in Mount Vernon, where there are very many nice parts of town, many black homeowners, the black middle class. You know, if you look at the income statistics and poverty statistics, it's not like Mount Vernon is a place like Baltimore, exactly, especially in the northern half of the city. Now, full disclosure, George, Baltimore is my favorite U.S. city. Well, I just mean, it, I, I also like <laughs> no, Baltimore no, as a totally, city, totally but I mean, in terms of the income. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, George, tread lightly. Baltimore is my favorite place in the entire Greatest world. Greatest city in America, as the benches there say. <laughs> it's the, it's the so. charm city. It's charm city. I love it. So, but I think to your point, there is a real constituency that wants good policing, like you mm -hmm. said. And some of the same people that will complain and protest against police brutality and corruption are also protesting against gun violence that is unsolved against, mm. you know, open air drug dealing that they view as a nuisance right down the block from where their mm -hmm. kids are um, and abandoned houses where people may be doing drugs or burning things or whatever. Like mm -hmm. they have they have concerns and they want officers to clear out those sorts of areas so that I think I totally agree with you. There is a a clash of interest in some ways between that swath of residents who are in the underground economy are doing illegal things and are sort of suffering both from a lack of stable employment and a kind of very harsh policing response. And those who are working people, you know, in a class socioeconomically above them who don't want to have to deal with all the ripple effects of their activities. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, who's voting in Mount Vernon? It's, it's it's that that group of homeowners that we're talking about or or employed residents for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the leadership of the city has been responsive to their needs in terms of trying to be aggressive on crime. And in some to some degree, you could say that they have been successful and and that just like across the country, crime has gone down, violent crime, especially in Mount Vernon. But there's been a great cost. Mm -hmm. I've got a small question for you here and a big one, small one. Was there a shooting spike in Mount Vernon over this summer? So I don't have the latest data, so I can't give you a quantitative definitive answer. But I can say based on the way that the local media and the police department have talked about it, it certainly seems so. And the department has sort of voiced its proactive sort of response to that shooting, you know, apparent spike by creating a, a new unit called the Violent Crimes Unit that's supposed to sort of target and focus on gun crime. And then the, the big question here with this perennial problem of simultaneous over and under policing, how much of this, taking the large view, just goes back to the drug war, which uh, sort of comes right out of the tail end of the civil rights era and then becomes a mechanism for just requiring or necessitating or creating community demand for a continuous and aggressive police presence? You know, I think there's one story that we did that really speaks to that, which is our, our latest story. The opening scene of that story is based on a part of the tapes where an officer, John Campo, is telling Bavel, the whistleblower, about an incident in which police were allegedly aware of a, a, a man who had a loaded handgun and had been shot at by gang members in the city and this man was driving around with a kid and his son in the back seat and this officer believed that he was going to look for the men that had shot at him and that there was a potential for a shooting if those two groups were to encounter each other with this son potentially in the crossfire or residents in the crossfire but this officer who was speaking on the phone being recorded secretly said our unit refused to arrest this man when we could have or get a warrant, you know, he didn't say this, but could have gotten a warrant for, with the judge and, and gone and arrested him for the gun. Because we were more concerned about a federal drug operation that was targeting this man that we didn't want to upset. 
and and when the story came out, it really outraged residents because it's like a federal crack operation to get a guy who sold crack to an undercover a couple times is apparently allegedly more important than the lives of black residents who may be endangered because of the failure of police or refusal of police allegedly to arrest this man and stop potential shooting from taking place. And so I don't know about exactly the legacy of the drug war in Mount Vernon. I think there'd be a lot more to be written about that. But I think that allegation shows the the sort of strength of that logic of the war on drugs and of making arrests and getting big arrests, you know, at any cost and, and sort of the damage that can do to public safety, you know, in the here and now. And my last question here, and I think Chrissy may have a few more, is uh, when you look at this new wave of reform prosecutors, real or alleged in uh, Queens, in Brooklyn, in Westchester County now, arguably other places, and this new disclosure of officers who internally prosecutors are suspicious of, do you see that as potentially a significant change or reform element that could shift some of these uh, generational or recurring dynamics? Or is this just uh, sort of a little more noise uh, in the same song? Um, It's hard for me to say if it will create a definitive dynamic change. But I I think what we definitely see in Mount Vernon is that it's been so hard to get information about these officers and about what they've been doing on the streets because of the secrecy laws and because of the nature of the court system in which so many people were assigned court-appointed counsel and took pleas in part because they never got to learn anything about the officers or even the information in their cases for so long in the process. So the changes in discovery and the changes to 50A could allow more people to, if they feel they're innocent, challenge their cases for a longer period of time and get more data and information out into the public realm, which then allows people like me to piece together those records and start to show patterns of of warning signs as they emerge. And for too long in Westchester and New York State and the country, that has not been possible. It seems to me that it's possible that the prosecutors doing this puts real pressure on police chiefs in terms of managing their own personnel. If you have officers who can't be efficient anymore, if you can't make cases off of their work, that if that's sustained over a decade, that that's something that could lead to larger changes. But obviously, that's TBD. I think that's very true. So, George, Harry and I are going to have on my former advisor in the upcoming weeks, Esther Fuchs, who talks about mayors and money. And my concern is sort of a a 30,000 feet forward-looking concern, which is as cities, tier one cities, tier two cities, and, and I would probably put Mount Vernon kind of a tier three because of the size. As we move forward in the next few years, and because of the financial constraints at the federal level, because of these BS tax breaks we keep giving rich people. Um, I'm afraid that we're going to see this defunding of cities that we saw, you know, that you alluded to in the past that have real longstanding effects on communities. So we know what happens when the social safety net is ripped up from underneath folks. We know what happens when there's defunding of education. And so all of these things, these policy decisions, I should say, not things, policy decisions that are deliberate will directly affect Mount Vernon because we'll see a decrease in funding for education and social services, even roads, right? And even sort of public housing, whatever it may be. And I fear that this uptick in crime, which is usually the correlation, will then put some of this progress you mentioned on the back burner because it'll be a conversation about necessity and a sense of urgency. So from the reporting you've done, not just in Mount Vernon, but but in the past, looking at other cities, Where do you think we go in, say, the next six months, one year, five years out? Are you concerned about anything in particular? Do you have confidence that the the DA and the mayor and the police commissioner can work together? I mean, what's your journalistic compass telling you about Mount Vernon right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of cities, like you said, are in for fiscal crises. In New York City, 
I guess the governor is not going to allow the city to do deficit borrowing. You know, mm-hmm. are we going to have massive cuts to social services? It seems likely Mount Vernon doesn't even have anywhere near the kind of tax base that New York City does. Um, so the cuts are all the more painful there. Um, and right now, even before the, the sort of financial crisis that we're heading towards, it's already struggling to keep like the main hospital open that's there, which is a major source of jobs, but also just resources for the community. And the mayor and the political leadership of the city have been begging Governor Cuomo for help in keeping the hospital open, seemingly falling on deaf ears. So I think you're totally right. There is a historic sense of progress in terms of this peace and the safety that residents have come to enjoy in Mount Vernon. I wouldn't say it's rosy for many residents, but I think many of them would say that it's much better than when they were growing up or when their parents were growing up. And for that to be lost, it would be a monumental failure to the people of Mount Vernon and to people across this country. So I, I, I don't have an answer of how to stop that or fix that, but I, I definitely say it's concerning. And then I think my last, my last quick question is, what does middle-class flight look like in Mount Vernon? I mean, you've talked quite extensively about kind of these generational conversations. Are we seeing folks leaving and not coming back? And if so, where are they going? Or is this one of those cities where they don't really have to worry about population drops because folks just stay there in perpetuity? I'll answer that by saying that Mount Vernon is still segregated in certain ways. There's sort of northern enclave of the city, which sort of tries to brand itself as different from Mount Vernon. It's called Fleetwood. Residents there refer to it as Fleetwood, not Mount Vernon. Um, And, you know, when you go there, there's like fancy condos being built and like residents are being encouraged to move there. And like people of a different class from the south side, financially speaking. I can understand why the city is encouraging that. It helps the tax base. It helps with social services. I don't know if Mount Vernon suffers this, like many cities, suffers this fiscal crisis. Will that development sort of stop? And mm-hmm. will will that investment stop? I think there's a good chance it would, um, as people view it as a less desirable place to live. Crime rises, social services rise, the schools, quality falls, et cetera. So, so I think there are, are major concerns in that regard. Hmm. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about. <laughs> um, and I want to thank you for coming on. Can you make us a promise that you'll come back? Definitely. I like this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like having you on the show. Um, so, George, Joseph, thank you so much for joining FAQ NYC. Uh, we really appreciate your journalism and the integrity with which you approach uh, this complex, I would say, puzzle of race and class and crime and money and disinvestment of of spaces where citizens live. Um, I guess my last quick question is, what does immigration look like there? Um, I, I, I believe there is a significant immigrant, immigrant population, and, and sometimes leaders will refer to how the city's size is actually somewhat bigger, maybe significantly bigger than what the census data would would show because of that population. I I can't really give you too many details. I'm not an expert in that area, but I know it's there. There definitely is a population. Okay, I think I'm going to do a little little digging, um, just okay. because so many cities are are banking on immigrant populations to essentially right. save them and also save the tax base because it's not just white flight; it's middle class flight that can tank a city. Um, but we so appreciate you coming on and you've already promised that you're going to come back. So we'll see you soon. Well, this has been fun. Thank you guys for having me again. I appreciate it. George, thank you so much. And, uh, can you give us any hint of what we might want to stay tuned for next? So, uh, a new district attorney is coming into Westchester and has promised to do a thorough investigation in her first hundred days. So we'll be closely keeping an eye on that. And we are, working on some stories that have to do with, you know, potential cases uh, that could be reviewed in that regard. Excellent. You're listening to George Joseph and Chrissy Greer and Harry Siegel, FAQ NYC.
Bye. Bye. F-A-Q. You've been listening to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer with my co-host, Harry Siegel. This week, we want to thank George Joseph for joining us. George is an investigative reporter with WNYC's Race and Justice Unit. FAQ is part of the Brickhouse Co-op of Independent Journalists. We normally record at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. But during this little quarantine time, we both are recording from the great borough of Brooklyn. As always, our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and our mixer, master, chopper, and all-around coordinator is Adam Kamara, who puts the podcast together. Thank you both. You all have been listening to FAQ. Please stay well, wear a mask, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>